Hey, hey, what's going on? Tales from the Green Room, episode number 35. I am Howie Spangler. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you so much to my supporters of the podcast. Um, it's been really cool. I get this little email and it's like, Tales from the Green Room podcast has a new supporter. And it's just, I don't know, man. It's it's really nice. That's all I can really say about it. Thank you so much to everybody that's, um, you know, listens to the show and comes to see my band play and buys our records and just helps support my art. Um, so rad. If you'd like to find out how to do it, go to talesfromthegreenroom.com. You can hit the little support the podcast button and you can uh, pick a tier. It's 99 cents or $4.99 or $9.99 a month. You can cancel any time. Um, no hard feelings. We all got to eat, right? Um, so I uh, last week I put up the uh, episode 34 and I asked um, people what they'd like me to talk about. Um, I was kind of running out of ideas because I, I I think you know what I think to myself is like, do people really want to hear me talk about this shit? You know. So I figured maybe I'll just put up a question like, hey, what should I talk about? Just to kind of get you know see if there's any interest out there. And I got a few suggestions. And one of them, uh, my buddy Colin, Colin Shores. Thanks, man, for this one. This one's for you. Um, he said, you should talk about the 2000s. Bands you played with, like mistakes that were made, shit that went down, right? And I thought that was a great idea. I was like, you know, I haven't really thought about that time in my life in a while, like extensively anyway. Um, so this is the opportunity, you know, and, uh, it's a pretty long one. I talked for like 75 or 80 minutes or something like that. Just trying to cover everything I can think of from 2000 to 2010. And, uh, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff went down in those years for sure. From shitty relationships to crushing, devastating disappointments from major record labels that were interested in the band but then suddenly weren't interested in the band to the van catching on fire to finding out I was going to be a dad. Like, crazy time in my life. And uh, so now you're going to hear about it. <laughs> Hope you're ready. want to give a shout-out to Customized Grinder out there in California. Shane and his wife, uh, they take care of lots of things for the band they made these sick flags the, the Maryland flag that we got printed with the Ballyhoo logo and the Earl on them it looks so dope it's hanging up in my studio right now um, they do the grinders they do the, the glass blunts they, they printed posters they, they were a big supporter on our, uh, our summer tour the Good Vibrations tour um, just good people that get things done if you need something done for your, for your uh, event or your band or whatever flyers, posters Flags, grinders, custom guitar picks. They printed the giant banner of the new record, the art, the 20 by 20. Thing is huge, dude. Fucking huge. And they printed it, and it just it looks great. The quality is amazing, and they the turnaround was insane. It was like a week. Um, they're just good people that care. So uh, hit up Customized Grinder if you need anything like that. They're also on Instagram and all that. Oh yeah, dude. Uh, so I just saw that um, 
Tales is uh, number six at Anchor for a music podcast. Uh, thank you very much for that, everybody that's listening. Um, I would like to see this go up on the iTunes charts, like at Apple. Like most of you, I think, listen on Spotify and iTunes, um, the, the Apple podcast. So I would love to see if you could do me a favor and just like like and review, uh, like rate and review and subscribe if you haven't already. Um, that'd be rad. Like it just helps like get up in the uh, in the categories there on the charts um, for discovery and things like that. Um, yeah, that'd be rad. I'd, I'd love to see this thing get in like the, the top 50 or something at, at Apple. Uh, been doing some vlogging lately. Um, not as much as I'd like. Take, it's actually a lot of work doing that. I don't know how these guys do this every day. These bloggers that put shit up every day. I just, I guess when it's your primary thing, when you're like a YouTuber, content creator, it's what you do. So I guess they can afford to do that stuff all day, every day. Um, but I, so every couple of days I try to put up something and uh, just kind of what, what went down that day. Uh, go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Howie Spangler. Uh, subscribe like hit the bell you know so you get the notifications when i put something up um just i don't know maybe some interesting stuff there for you check it out when you get a chance i just love creating shit you know so video was video i love working with video i love editing and you know it's just fun for me um so uh that's my daughter playing in the background sorry about the noise uh i want to apologize for the quality on episodes uh 32 and 33 um we were on tour and there's really no quiet place and you hear the van rumbling and I don't my my mobile mics suck so I'm hoping that uh, I can eventually upgrade to getting some nice uh, sure some seven B's or something like that for everybody when we do that kind of stuff when I'm when I'm out when I'm on location you know um, so I apologize for that quality but hope you uh, hope you got some good information about the record those guys um, all right I'm not gonna waste any more of your time. Enjoy. This is me and my experience in the 2000s. The 2000s. The aughts, if you're a hipster. The aughts. <laughs> um what a difference the uh, a decade makes how you can be a completely different person i know i am um 2000s were a weird time for the band especially the early 2000s weird time for me personally um somebody in their early 20s I don't think you've quite figured yourself out yet in your 20s or maybe maybe it was just me. I don't want to maybe maybe you did, you know. <laughs> if you're listening, maybe you're like, "Oh, fuck this guy. I knew who I was." But I feel like I was not all together. I think being a 20-year-old uh such just a weird time. You think you know who you are. You know? But then you hit 30 and you're like a completely different person. Um, I just found out I'm a zennial. If you're born between 78 and 83, 
you're a zenial. It's like this micro uh, generation because you remember you remember life before the internet, and you have life in the current uh, in the current state of things. So um, it's like I guess you understand both. You know how to do technology. You know how to use technology, but you also remember when there was no internet and cell phones and things like that. So yeah, I'm a zennial. If you're born between 78 and 83, look it up. It's a, it starts with an X. It's X and then ennial, zennial. I assume it's zennial. It would be stupid if it was Xennial, right? Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's so it was really weird. It was like the band was um, about five years old when uh, Y2K happened nearly five years old we started in 95 in the summer and we had done in the late 90s we had played some shows not a ton played our first club show in 98 i was like 17 and they i remember they gave us a case of coors light <laughs> clearly you know we weren't old enough but they gave us beer but it was wasted on me. I I didn't drink back then. I was like, just kind of weirded out by drinking. My dad was kind of an alcoholic growing up. He's a great guy, but he would get drunk a lot and just like say and do dumb shit. And, you know what I mean? Uh, just in, embarrass me in front of my friends, like shit like that, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Um, I used to give him shit about it in the later years before he passed. <laughs> insane but um but that kind of stuff like weirded me out about drinking i guess uh, as a kid i remember we recorded our first this band has actually one more album that most people don't know about um we recorded in uh february 98 it's the first time we ever went to a studio and we uh it was really exciting and we finally laid down i think it was 16 songs and <clears throat> did it in like 36 hours mixed it and everything and it it turned out you know it was pretty good i mean you really shouldn't do that because you know i mean we were really tight and rehearsed and everything for what it was but uh looking back i wish we would have taken some more time with it but anyway we never released it um and uh i know some people have it but uh i don't know it was just a good time in our lives and um actually brought back one of the old songs, uh, Selling Out. It was called Selling Out for the Beef back then. I don't know why I called it that, but it's called Selling Out. It's on our new record now, which I thought was cool. We were, you know, revived a song from over 20 years ago. Um, but, uh, and the night that we came home from that, um, my dad was wasted. And he was just really stoked, and he was filled with love, I could see. He was just so proud and... Uh, pumped on what we had done and he paid for the session I think it was only like 400 bucks and he was just really happy and he wanted to take a shot with us it was a shot of whiskey I think and I was all weird about it I was like no I'm not doing that that's that's fucking weird you know Donald did it my brother he was all about it I think he was already starting to getting into weed and <laughs> and drinking 40s and shit sometimes at that point but um <clears throat> Um, so, uh, 
we'd uh, so we'd had some experience in the studio and we were playing some shows and uh yeah i guess around 99 things were picking up a little bit we were writing what i thought were good enough songs um so i came up with some money and uh we recorded our first official album in April of 2000 and that would become 365 a 365 day weekend I remember I was I was so stoked on that title I thought it was so clever back then um 365 day weekend it was like what if you could just take a year off and not do anything school work you know and everything was fine um and that was kind of the vibe of it was just about fun and the songs front to back on that record didn't exactly make sense I guess as far as like an in an album context like it was just songs you know just random songs more of like a collection I guess there was like the styles were all over the place we were like playing like pop punk and with some reggae and uh, some funk our bass player at the time was really into like slap bass and coming up with this weird shit like Primus, you know. And we were just writing cool songs. And, uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, thought or planning behind it. It was just, okay, well, here's here's the songs, you know. And went in and did it. And I'm real proud of it. It turned out really good. It was We did it in two days in April of 2000 cost like 700 bucks went back to it was a place called cloud nine <clears throat> cloud nine uh recordings and that's where we did the 1998 album and uh so it was cool to see the engineer again and um i don't know i, I felt more uh i was definitely it was it was still it's always exciting being in the studio but i just felt more uh experience and i knew how to record and uh, I knew what I wanted. I was very uh, focused and driven back then when it came to the music. I, I knew the sounds I was looking for, and I had no idea how to do any of it, you know, how to make the sounds. I just knew I was just how to describe them from my head, you know, and hopefully the engineer would figure it out. <clears throat> so uh, we made that record, and it came out in October of 2000. And uh, we, we had the record release party here in Aberdeen one day. I think it was October 19th, 2000. And we, I don't know, we played like an hour, hour and a half, probably. Um, and we were stoked to play the new songs. You know, it was, it, was, uh, it was just fun. It felt fresh. Like thinking back on those songs, man just trying to put myself back in that moment, just, you know, playing those songs for the first time. And we didn't have a huge crowd. It was, it was okay, but the venue was huge. It was, uh, it was called Hyperlight and it was in Aberdeen. Um, and I think maybe where they went wrong was the location. Like it, the, the place was great. It was huge. It was definitely ideal for what they had in mind. It was like this big place where you could go and uh, had like pool tables and these really cool, pool tables they call it skilliards and it was like 
weird, oddly shaped pool tables. It was almost like, like putt putt, but, but for pool. Um, so you'd have to try bank shots and things to try to get things around corners and like it was really, really weird, but very cool. And they had like arcade games, I, I think, and um, it was just like a spot that was supposed to be for kids, which I thought was awesome because you didn't really have that, and you still don't really have that, I think, um, in Aberdeen. A lot of kids go to the library and stuff, but this is like a cool spot. supposed to be like a teen town kind of thing. My mom uh, and her friends went to a place called Teen Town around here when they were in high school, middle school, high school. And uh, there was my mom was like Miss Teen Town and stuff one year. It's just silly. Uh, so anyway, the show went well, you know, for what it was. And it just really kicked things off for us. And I... I remember being so proud. Um, I went and got a thousand dollar loan from my bank, um, my credit union at the time, and couldn't believe I got the money and made this record. And I drew drew the art on the cover art, uh, just the three of us. Um, and uh, we actually that's around the time Scott started playing with the band. Uh, we actually. It was, it was, I remember 1999, we played with some punk bands at our high school and we were like, we need something, something cool and something like different and eye popping and like a secret weapon kind of thing. And JR, who was a bass player years later for us, um, he was spinning records at around that time as like a hobby. And uh, I think he was doing some gigs too. But um, anyway, so we had him show up and we did a little thing with him, like this kind of breakdown part in the set and uh, where the band would kind of jam along, kind of like, you know, what you'd see like um, Travis Barker doing with, you know, DJ AM back in the day, like playing along to just making a show out of it. And uh, the, the all the kids in the place went fucking nuts when we did it. And it was like this cool new thing. Everybody's really excited that we did it. So um, I thought when we did that record, 365, that it might be cool to have some some scratches and some cuts and things. And uh, Scott was one of the local guys here in the scene. Uh, JR had kind of dropped it by that point. So we got Scott, one of his buddies, to come and scratch it up a little bit. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, it felt like it added to the songs. We had kind of like a hip hop feel in some of the, some of the stuff on that record. So I thought it worked out really nicely. And, uh, so 2001 happens. Um, there was this station called HFS in DC and it was like, the big station man the big alternative station they played fucking everybody and they put on this festival this big show every year at rfk stadium in dc and every band every local band wanted to play that show um so much exposure and just just a really great fun time and so uh we had built enough noise to where they um HFS actually contacted us and they said, hey, you're, you're in the big break. It's like, what? And the big break was 
where they take a few bands, local bands, and they let them compete at radio station events and uh, see if they'll open the, the main stage. Well, back then it was the local stage. They changed it to uh, main stage a couple years later. But <clears throat> so, so here we go. We're, it's, it's 2001, spring. Uh, we go play this show. And we, I believe we made it. We didn't make it to the finals. We, but the show that we played, it was with uh, two other bands, I think. And one of them was a band called Cactus Patch, who later became Army of Me, if anybody remembers them. Um, good, good band, like really alternative kind of sound. Anyway, uh, they brought like a bus of like 50 people. And we just brought like as many friends as we could in, in cars. So <laughs> we had uh, significantly, significantly less. But we put on a good show. And I remember Benji from Good Charlotte was there. Because those guys are, you know, local Maryland boys. And uh, he was there because he knew the Cactus Patch guys. And uh, I always thought that maybe that was part of it. Like, maybe, like, Benji was an influence. Like, I don't think Benji was like, yeah, you should let them win. But I think it was just, like, cool that they were friends, you know? Maybe the radio station thought that was cool. <laughs> That's just my conspiracy theory part. Um, I've met those guys, uh, both Joel and Benji, and they were, like, they were, like, super nice when I met them a couple times. I think it was on Warp Tour. But uh, so uh, we played the show, man. We rocked it. It was so fun. Uh, we did it. It was on Kent Island. I can't remember the name of the bar. But it was right there on the water, this little bar. We killed it, man. Fucking crushed. Just We were putting on a pretty fun live show back then. Just energy. You know, we weren't doing anything extravagant. Like, we weren't in costumes or there wasn't pyro or anything like that. But or crazy lighting, but we, we just were energetic. And um, we, the, I remember when they were announcing the winner, we were just like waiting for the, the verdict, you know, and we're standing there and they're like, all right, it was really close. And the crowd was like, yeah. And he was like, it was really, really, really close. And I knew, I fucking knew what was about to happen. Like, the it was going to be between us and Cactus Patch. The other band that played with us, they just didn't, I don't know, I just knew, I just knew we were, like, better than them. You know what I'm saying? Like, <clears throat> I know that sounds shitty, but I just knew that, like, it's just between us and Cactus Patch. And they and they were a good band, but they had a lot of people, and I was just like, they're probably going to win because, you know, crowd or whatever. But, so, it was really, really close all right, here's, you know, give it up for Cactus Patch. It's like, fuck! <laughs> oh, man, we were bummed out. We were bummed out because it was like a huge opportunity, you know? But it was cool to play the, play the thing to begin with, and we got on HFS's radar, and that was really more important in the end. Um, so I made it to the finals. I went and checked out the finals at Wrecker Theater that year. Um, was it that year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I made it to the finals, and I met up with Bob Wah, who was the music director or program director. It was one of the two at HFS, and shook his hand. Hey, man, thanks for having us. Uh, you know, at the 
at the show the other night and we, we had a lot of fun and he's like yeah man he's, he shook my hand he's like uh so i guess i'll uh, see you guys at rfk stadium in may and i and i was like shaking his hand i just stared at him i was like what yeah yeah you're gonna do the you're gonna do the local stage right and we were like what <laughs> we were tripping man i just gave him a hug i was like dude thank you so much oh my god this is so awesome so they let us uh Open the local stage. That's what it was. I th- yeah, that's what it was. I think the the band that wins gets to open the main stage, and they let us open the local stage, and that was huge for us. We were we were insanely excited. I couldn't believe it. I was like, "We're gonna play HF Festival! Holy shit! We're gonna open up the whole thing." <clears throat> so, uh, May twenty seventh, two thousand one. It was a Sunday. It's Memorial Day weekend. And 10.20 in the morning, dude, we opened up the local stage at HF Festival. And it was the first day that they did two days, or the first year that they did two days. It was 27th to 28th, Sunday, Monday. And, I mean, the festival had gotten so huge at this point. And they did two days. And they had everybody. I mean, that festival that year, it was Green Day, Incubus, Linkin Park, Stained, Puddle of Mud, uh, you know, like all the bands of that time, the 99, 2000, 2001 era. Uh, just a big, huge bill, man. And I just couldn't believe it. And so we uh, we were in the program. I still, have my, I still have the program somewhere. It's like we're in that shit. Like it's just, it was so cool. And uh, I think, yeah, Weezer played that year. Like it was just so rad and and we had a great crowd it was a huge exposure for us and 2001 was just an awesome year for us it re- that really kicked it off um we had a record that was doing pretty well i guess and it was at least getting us some exposure getting on people's radar and uh so later that year um we did we got another call from HFS, and it was to do, it was called the Five O'Clock Shadow. And that was when uh, Afro Man had first hit with Because I Got High. And so we got to open for him. And uh, he had a band. It was just like a three-piece. He was playing guitar. He was like, he was, he was crushing, man. And so we did that, that at a place called Bohagers, which is now been closed for years um but it was like the spot back in the day uh played at bohagers did this big show i mean i came right from work i was wearing like shitty clothes did did the set and uh it was just everything we were just on fire just felt things building got a call from 98 rock i think it was to do it was either 98 rock or maybe it was hfs again um to do uh the fells point festival i can't remember which station was doing it back then but um, did that. I mean, it was just, we were just getting all these, get picked up for all these different things, um, these high profile shows in the area. And it was just like, I felt like we were just on our way. Um, and then, <laughs> oh man. So I worked a, a day job. I was working at Saks Fifth Avenue in Aberdeen. It's like a warehouse that distributes nice clothes and uh i had this whole thing set up we were going to go do a tv show called megahertz 
with Alan Scott. And Alan Scott used to be a personality at HFS. HFS. And he also ran this TV show. So I got the invite. Hey, man, bring Ballyhoo in to to do megahertz. And I was like, fuck, this is awesome. And it was just more exposure. You know, it was more something else for the band. And like I said, it was just 2001. We were just on fire, dude. And so the day we were supposed to do it, I'm like, all right. I called Donald. I called the bass player. You know, all right, so tonight we're going to meet up. I get off work at four. We're going to go meet up at, you know, whatever. And go down there and try to be there by, you know, 5.30 or 6, whatever it was. And uh, bass player is like, I can't do it, dude. It's like, what? I got to work. Like, like, what are you talking about, man? What are you talking? Dude. We, it's been on the books, you know what I mean, for, for a month or two or whatever it was. Um, and it was hard to get shows back then. Like, I was just trying to book wherever I could, you know. I didn't, we didn't have an agent. And we were just, I knew that we were on fire. And this was a huge opportunity, and we were about to blow it. So I had to call Alan Scott, and I had to tell him, hey, man, um, our bass player can't make it. But I will still come down, and I, I would love to play some songs on the acoustic guitar. He's like, ah, oh, man. And like, I bummed him out because he, I guess the, the, the workers were a union, and they've all been hired. And so basically, they're just throwing money out the window um, for this crew that's just going to be standing around, or they're going to get paid anyway. And he was really bummed out about that, and I knew I fucked up. I knew it. You know, and sure enough, we stopped getting calls. And it was just, uh, oh man, it was devastating. Just felt like I, we shot ourselves in the foot, you know. And I let it happen. I should have done something, maybe. I don't know what I could have done. You know, find a bass player in, in an hour or two, you know. But it's a hindsight, right? Um, so that was really a bummer. And go figure, 2002, 2003 were just nothing. Nothing was happening. I was in this awful, toxic relationship and just, I don't know, just felt like everything was just going wrong. And I easily could have just sank into like a weird depression and just ended up working at the warehouse forever, you know? Um, but luckily I, I don't know. I've just always had this drive to, to want to be more, you know, for myself. And after four years of being with this girl and you all, you all have heard some songs by now, but, uh, I just finally, I had to end it. I was, I was done. It was like the worst. I was becoming a, I was always like a happy type of person um, in spite of, you know, weird things that had happened to me. I lose my mom at a young age. Things, just things like that. And the kind of the, the struggle of keeping a band together and not having a real direction and things like that. And uh, 
I just knew that she had to go. I was like, we got to. And so like, I got this, uh, we were living in this town home in Havity Grace, the, the town I live in now, actually. And it was in this weird part of town. It was like, wasn't quite Section 8, but it was like just, uh, it was for low-income families, which, you know, I was definitely low-income. And I was, the, I was the only one making the money, working three jobs and shit. It was terrible. Uh, but, like, I got this message in the mail. It was like, hey, uh, so they're going to tear this place down. Like, the whole development, they were going to come bulldoze it in, like, a month. So <laughs> I was just like, holy shit, wow, okay. Um, but I saw it as an opportunity to get out. I was like, huh, okay, well, I have to leave. And this is my out. I'm going to tell this girl that it's over and I'm moving in with my grandmother and she's going to have to figure it out. She has a lot of family, you know, around the country. And and it, it sounds awful. It sounds like, you know, maybe, uh, maybe you might be thinking like, oh my God, this guy just like kicked her out. Like, just trust me when I say it was time and it was bad. We were, it was unhealthy and we had to get away from each other. And we were so young, you know, 20, 21, 22. And I think, yeah, I think it was, I was 21 when we finally separated. And, um, man, it was just, I was becoming someone that I didn't like. I was getting angry all the time and I hated everything and I didn't want to be that way. And I knew, I knew it was because of this relationship. And, uh, she took the dog, which sucked, but in the end it was better because I, I just was in no place to take care of, a, of an animal. And um, so I was bummed out about that for a couple months. But uh, So she, she left, and I moved in with my grandmother. And instantly, man, two days later, I had a cell phone. It was a it was a color screen. It was pretty cool. It, was, it had had buttons and a color screen. It was really nice. <laughs> um, and I had a car. And I, I I I don't know, but life was instantly flipping around. Like I knew I'd made this change, and life was just gonna be that much better. So that was the end of two thousand two, and that entire year. It was just, I mean, we played some shows, but I, dude, I swear, we, we maybe played five or six shows the entire year. Like, there was nothing happening with this band, and I didn't know what was going on. Um, 2003 comes, playing a little bit more, and get a call from HFS again, 2003. Going to play the HF Festival Acoustic Tent. Like, okay, sweet. Okay, sweet. Things are kind of getting back back to normal, I guess, as far as the band was concerned. Um, <laughs> I tried out for Limp Biscuit. Oh, man. That was 2002? Yeah, oh, my God. That's how bad it was, everybody. I tried out for Limp Biscuit. <laughs> Went to Guitar Center down in, like, Rockville. And, yeah, I waited in line, and I tried out for Limp Biscuit on the guitar. Oh my God. I love Limp Biscuit. Look, okay. 
special place in my heart for Limp Bizkit, man. No shit. I love that band. I'm not a fan of like anything after. Uh, they had a couple good songs on um, The Unquestionable Truth. Pretty heavy shit. But everything after that kind of gets a little corny for me. I'm just like, but I'm always going to love like those first three records. Um, <laughs> call it what you want. But uh, so, yeah, that's how crazy shit got. I tried out for Limp Bizkit in 2002. Uh, did not make it. Did not make it. So um, 2003, do the HFS Acoustic Tent. It was kind of a weird situation. It wasn't the same. It wasn't like playing the local stage. Um, it was hot. I wore jeans. I don't know why. It was stupid. Um, <laughs> so we, uh, 2003, we started playing at the end of 2003. We started playing this bar in uh, Perryville called The Rendezvous. And we, it was a place that we learned. We, we started learning how to be a live band. I started drinking. I was like crushing Coronas every Thursday now. Um, and it was like the start of something really great. We knew uh, once we got a few weeks in, we knew we had something. We were building something every Thursday night. This place had a built-in crowd, and uh, because of us on a Thursday night, we were pulling people in. We had like pretty girls around us, like hanging out, buying us drinks, and yeah, everybody wanted to hang out with us. And, and it was just like, I don't know, it was just a wild night every Thursday. And um, we started be learning how to become a live band, like how to work a crowd, how to talk to a crowd. And I don't, I mean being a bar band is definitely not like the end goal. I don't want to be a fucking bar band, but we started out, man. It was like, it was the way to go. Um, we weren't playing shows all the time in Baltimore. And every now and then we get a show at like Fletcher's or something, which was like the spot, the rock, the rock bar down in Baltimore. And, um, but this place was how we could really hone the craft and really work it out. So I'm, I was writing songs all the time and now I had a way to get with the band and just, we would literally work out new songs on stage in front of people. Uh, and I would just make up lyrics. Like I would have some lyrics, but then I would make up what I didn't have. Um, and nobody really knew the difference. You know, we, they were just there to get fucked up and, and dance and try to take someone home, you know? And people come here to dance erotically. And they need a clean floor to do it on. So we would do that. And, uh, it just by 2004 we were fully fully in motion with this thing and uh we started working on our second record finally um and played hf festival again in 2004 did the local stage crushed it once again uh started recording started recording do it for the money and the songs were just so I don't know. They were so much. We had, like Cali Girl was one of the new songs at that time, 2004. And I just felt like we tapped into something. We were mixing reggae and and rock before it was called reggae rock, at least on a you know on a popularity level. Like 
people didn't know what to call it. You know what I mean? And it just, it was this new flavor, this new sound that we had found. We'd been playing reggae since like a year after the band started. Um, it was like 96 is when I kind of started mixing ska and reggae into the punk stuff, but really found a way to, to blend it and make it sound good. Um, around 2004 I guess and Cali Girl uh, I remember 2005 I think I wrote Cerveza just all these songs started coming together and I was like man really proud I was like man this is fucking cool like I feel I feel like we've leveled up musically the songwriting has just has gotten so much better and um, started getting play on the the Philly station, MMR, um, Jackson up there was very supportive, did their big spring break thing. Like it was just a lot of things are starting to happen again. Um, and now I did forget ab- about this to mention this earlier in the, in the earlier years before this, uh, 2001, I was approached by, um, DreamWorks records. This was, uh, early 2001, I believe. And this was, like I said, 2001 was a great year for us. And I was I was tripping. I couldn't believe I got an email from a guy, an A&R guy at DreamWorks Records. And it was like, finally, this, because this is what, that's what you wanted. All the bands wanted to be signed to a record label back then. Um, it was a way different time. And so we had some meetings. He came to a few shows. And, uh, Ultimately, it didn't work out, and that was like my first huge bummer. Other than losing that megahertz TV show like that year, <clears throat> but that was the that one really hurt because you know that's something that we'd worked for for at that point it was about six years, you know, and with all that stuff going on, things happening, it just felt right, and you know for whatever reason I couldn't deal with it. Um, I guess they a lot of these labels that approached us in the 2000s didn't know what to do with the band. They'd hear a song or two, and they just had no idea what to do with it. And uh, so, yeah, 2005, um, we're uh, still recording. It took almost two years to record this fucking album because <laughs> we had you know no money, you know no time, things like that. Just kind of getting in where we could. So like roughly in the summer of 05, I think it was spring, summer, I get an email from the uh, A&R person from Wind Up Records. And Wind Up Records, if you don't know, they had Creed and um, Finger Eleven and Evanescence, like big bands at the time. So And they were an independent label. So they were crushing it. You know, they were obviously bringing in money as an independent label with these huge bands and I get an email from uh, Diana she was the top ANR person of 2004 and she's emailing me about our songs and saying how she wants to sign us and uh, so you know the feelings come up again you know you're like oh god it's happening it's happening finally happening last time it wasn't right I'm glad it didn't happen but it's happening now everything's right this is perfect. You know, everything wasn't right. We didn't even have a fucking record finished. Like, you got to always try to be prepared 
it, these days. I mean, it's just always try to be prepared with music, have something ready to go, because you never know when someone's going to approach you. Um, that could do something great for your career. And we just weren't ready. We had rough mixes of songs that didn't even have all the parts yet that I'm sending to this huge A&R person in hopes that they'll have an imagination and be able to see what I see in my head, which is fucking impossible, right? Never leave it up to imagination. Always try to serve up a finished product, no matter what you're doing. I always have to, I always feel like I have to construct this whole thing and show either a, a detailed roadmap or something that's done just to get my point across to, to, because I don't trust people to see my vision. I don't trust people to use their imagination and be able to see what it could be. Do you understand that? Um, so here I am sending her these unfinished songs that aren't mixed and they don't sound great. And these are songs that ended up on do it for the money, but we just weren't like, they weren't there. And, and her husband was the head of the label and he said, no. And again, fucking bum out, dude. Like I was so upset about this. Like, we talked for a couple months, I think, over email, and then uh, she would call me. She's like, call me anytime. You know, she had this thick, uh, like, New York accent, but mixed with, um, like, Latino. Like, I-, I don't know how to explain it, but, like, really thick, crazy accent. She was a character. Um, but she was really nice, and but she just couldn't get her husband on board. And, uh, man, it was like the second big blow of that era. Um, And we'd been a band for 10 years at that point, which is crazy to think about. So, okay. Just going to finish this record, you know. Um, So, uh, January 2006, we released do it for the money and we had this huge record release party at the rendezvous that bar i mentioned earlier that we were playing every thursday oversold the place i mean it was uh it was amazing it was an insane night we had matt davis um great guy a dj from 98 rock come out and host it and it was just it just felt like things were moving in the right in the right direction um a few months later, April 2006, went on our first real tour. Six weeks across the country with uh, bands Rude Buddha, 33 West. Uh, it was just, it was everything that we'd wanted. Wanted to be on tour. We wanted to have music. You know, wanted people singing our songs. And couldn't believe it, man. People were people were singing along. And this, this record put us on the map. Do It For The Money is our second record. And it took you know, almost six years to put out a second record. But um, it was different this time. The songs were connecting, and it just everything just felt right. And we were just out there crushing it on the road. 
we were getting fucked up. I mean, it was it was nuts, man. We were like, like the the van caught on fire. Uh, we were down south somewhere, on a ten or something like that through Louisiana, I think it was, and or maybe it was Mississippi because we still had like a two hour drive after that. So like, I blew the transmission earlier that day. I wasn't a very good driver with a van and trailer back then. I was always trying to floor it, and you're not supposed to floor it in a van and trailer because you could really mess things up, which I did. So early that day, I blew the transmission. There's fluid spraying all over the trailer, you know, going like 80 miles an hour. Don't ever do that. And so later that night, <laughs> we're all trying to sleep in the back, and JR is driving, and all of a sudden it just swerves, and he's like, Everybody get the fuck out of the van. Like, ah, so everybody wakes up. I'm just wearing shorts. I'm not wearing shoes. I'm not wearing a shirt. Jumped out, landed on the ground. There were like thorn, there was like a thorn bush or something. Stepped on that as soon as, like, full force, jumped out of the van, landed on top of it. Fuck, ah, damn, what the hell? Look over, there's flames shooting out from underneath, from the undercarriage. Just, there's fucking flames coming out from under the van. The uh, the transmission fluid was all over the exhaust, and it got super hot and caught fire. So I jump over the guardrail um, to get away from the van, <laughs> and I slice the top of my foot open. I still have the scar. Um, blood squirts all over Scott's shorts, right? And I'm like, ah, fuck, ah. And JR's at the front of the van trying to figure out the, the fire extinguisher. Always have a fire extinguisher in the vehicle with you. Bands. Um, and, and know how to use it. And he's fumbling with it. And I just, I'm like, hey, what can I do to help? Ah. He fucking right that second hits the nozzle, got it working, sprayed me right in the fucking face. So, like, 100 miles an hour, white powder comes flying at my face. And I just, like, my head goes back. I grab my face. I'm like, fuck! Like, <laughs> oh, man. I was like, I'm out. I'm out. Fuck this. I'm out. I quit. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. And then we had to get towed. And that's how that night went. That was fucking terrible. Somehow uh, got the van fixed the next day uh, and got back on the road. And we lost so much money, man. I don't even know how we did it. I mean, Scott had had a good job leading up to that point. He left like a job making a lot of money being a chemist to come on the road. And I know that like his money like <laughs> probably kept the, the the band afloat on that tour um so that was great much much applause to him for that uh so yeah 2006 uh was a wild time and that was just the first half so later i think in the summer we were on another tour um out to california and that was the first time in california i still have the footage of us somewhere crossing into California on the northern side because our first show ever was in Sacramento 
in California. And so we were crossing over the northern side, and we were just so stoked. We couldn't believe we made it to California. It was a huge, huge milestone for us. Um, and we were all so, so excited about it. And uh, so sometime on that tour, we made it to um, a place called Paris, California, which is like in the deserts, like the hills have eyes type of shit. Like, there's nothing around. And uh, recorded in a studio. We actually recorded for um, the, uh, it was a Sense Boardware, which Mike, who now runs the pier, it was his thing. And he was putting out compilations. And so we did two songs for it at a studio there. The Friend Zone and Close to Me, which ended up being on Cheers. So we did those songs. And... uh, I got somehow got Chad Sexton from 311 to mix the friend zone. Like it and we put it out on this compilation. And uh it was a friend of mine um who used to play in a band called uh The Rivalry who was actually on some of those dates that I mentioned earlier that year with uh Rude Buddha and 33 West our first tour. And he was in touch with the 311 guys because they had recorded at the Hive before. Um, so that's how that connection was made. And he sent me uh, Chad's information, and I got a hold of him, and he mixed the song. And I couldn't believe that I was talking to Chad Sexton for 311. They were one of my favorite bands. And it was just a, just another exciting time. And he made it sound great. It was like the best we'd ever sounded at that point. So that connection comes up a little bit later as well, which is, which is great. Um, but we'll get to that. So in uh, 2007, I get, a, I get a MySpace message. MySpace message. Message. Uh, from Scotch Ralston, who is 311's sound engineer and producer from their old stuff. And now he's back doing their, their new stuff, but this random message I'm like holy shit dude seriously and it's just it's just a few sentences and it's like let's make a record I'm like what what's going on here right so we uh, started recording uh, what would become Cheers in the summer of 2007 and it was like some of the most fun recording I've ever had we went to uh, we did, went and did drums and bass and a lot of the guitars at Rightway Studios in Baltimore. Steve Wright was a really nice guy and had us in. And I think we did like five or six days down there with that. And the rest of it uh, was in Scotch's Winnebago, like his RV. Like we went and did like guerrilla recording stuff. Like in, uh, I remember I recorded the guitar solo for The Struggle in my grandmother's kitchen and I was supposed to go to work that day and I didn't know I was on the schedule and they called me and they're like hey uh yeah you're supposed to be here fuckface and I'm just like oh shit oh god I'm so sorry I'm in the middle of recording right now like I I'm recording right now like and they were they were just like all right whatever and I'm, I'm sure I got like in trouble and lost some shifts or something for it but I wasn't gonna leave you know this session and uh <clears throat> 
so yeah there was that and then uh recorded in danielle's out in like in front of her parents house one day we went to the uh the steel drums uh were recorded in a target parking lot in the target parking lot in abingdon not far from where i live this guy joe came and did that in the rv um I remember playing guitar for like nine hours on different songs in the at Susquehanna State Park in the middle of nowhere, and you'd be surprised at the noises you'd hear. Like you don't, you think you're okay. Let's go where nobody's around. You're not gonna hear shit. You're still hearing like trains and like airplanes. You just can't get away from it. It was wild. Um, and I believe that's where I shot the uh, the famous pic of me holding two three eleven like gold and platinum plaques and singing into the microphone like as if they were giving me uh the power to to sing and write great songs <laughs> so stupid so uh later that summer we did um we played a show in baltimore and ended up having two 311 sound men uh run our sound which was funny because scotch came up to uh he was in town for recording and he just came to the show and him and this guy Jamie who was running sound for 311 at the time when Scotch wasn't they worked together and they mixed our they mixed the band that night it's, I just thought that was so cool like two 311 sound men running Ballyhoo sound um it was the same day that everyone had gotten iPhones it was when the iPhone came out the first one 2007 and everybody was talking about it and they, they waited in line paid like 600 bucks and man what a time isn't that crazy like we didn't have iPhones before 2007. Um, so uh, the next big thing that I can remember that came up in the, in the 2000s was March 2008. Uh, we get the call to <laughs> the same weekend. I get a call from Slightly Stupid's management and 311's management. I'm just mind blown, right? Because I'm like, damn, these are like two bands that I respect and they want us to come open shows. It's fucking wild. So uh, March 15 and 16, we go to Rolla, Missouri. 2008, we go to Rolla, Missouri and we open for 311 for the first time. And I was goddamn nervous, dude. I was tripping. We didn't have a sound check like Everything was running behind, and story the story of the year played that night as well. Um, so we're trying to load in front of them while they're getting their stuff set up, and there were two fucking drum risers stacked. So we were like right up against the front of the stage in like a line. We weren't even set up like a traditional setup, you know. It was like it was like uh, uh, Scott on keys turntables and then bass player and then me and then donald on the right i think i think that's how it went on drums and we just all squished up against the front had zero sound check not even a line check and time comes it's like all right let's go let's do it went up there started playing dude and the goddamn kick drum was so fucking loud in the monitors it hurt my ears it like i thought of perforating eardrum and 
we played i think we played great from what it was um we sounded awful out front because there was just no sound check or anything um but the crowd really seemed to dig it and they were really they were like really drunk and hung over and shit from tired from drinking all day because it was like uh St. Pat's weekend, and apparently in Rolla, Missouri, like they love St. Patty's Day, so they do this whole big day, like parade and all kinds of shit. Um, that night, we're packing up, and I get a text. It's from Chad Sexton. He's like, "Hey man, what are you guys doing?" I was like, "Oh, we're just you know packing up, whatever, about to take off." He's like, "Come hang out on the bus." We're like, "What?" <laughs> so tour buses were like this mythical thing, you know back then and uh just magical places and so uh walk up there and he pokes out and he's like hey man what's up i'm like how's the record doing i'm like dude what's up it was it was, it was rad so we hung out with uh nick and tim and chad for like two hours on the bus man just listening to music and um told nick the story about how uh scott's tried to give me the i think it was the platinum plaque for transistor <laughs> he's like i'm gonna kill him <laughs> oh man just a fun night man it was like hanging out with these dudes that like just really look up to and oh that was awesome um so the next night we go to uh, columbus ohio played at lifestyles community pavilion with 311 again and again crowd went crazy uh, the footage is on youtube somewhere um there's like 3,000 people, and we just went out and did what we did. And I don't know. It was just uh, we really connected with that that whole 311 Nation, man. It was uh, ever since then, it's just been all love from that community. And I couldn't be happier to be associated with, you know, people like that. So many good people in, in that fan base. And we get a lot of crossover into the Valley Hooligans. Um, just mostly positive people that just love music and and just want to live their life, you know? And uh, a lot of people helping others. And I don't know, it's just a good situation to be in. Um, hung out for a little bit that night uh, before we said goodbye, and it was just a great couple days with one of my favorite bands. It was amazing. Um, so then the next night, we opened for Slightly Stupid in Allentown, PA, at a place called Crocodile Rock. I fucking hate that place. And I heard it closed down and fucking good for them. Good. So here's what happened. Uh, we get there for load-in and we're bringing our stuff in and like the bouncers and shit and all the staff were like fighting with each other. Like you could see them like it was the weirdest, like, tense kind of situation. Like, you just, everybody was, like, mad at each other and shit. It was the weirdest thing. And never really, still really haven't experienced that vibe in any other venue. I've played, I've played, I don't know how many places. I've played, like, over 2,000 shows in my life, right? And uh, that was the one spot where I'm just, man, fuck this place. You know what I'm saying? Was, you know there's something wrong. And, uh... These guys were just like big meathead dudes that, man, I remember during the show, they were choking kids out, throwing them out, like left and right, man. And it was just not a good scene. 
And I'm surprised that place stayed open as long as it did. Um, but so we get, we, so stupid's like, all right, you guys are going to play an hour. Like, all right. And I, I knew I didn't want to play an hour because they're there to see slightly stupid. They're not there to see us. We're the opening band, right? <clears throat> and I'd done enough shows at that point where I just knew. And sure enough, it went down just like I thought. So about 40 minutes into the set, between songs, it's just the crowd's like, slightly stupid, slightly stupid. And we just looked at each other like, ah, fuck, there it is. We just knew, you know. And I think, like, we were playing, like, heavy shit, you know, like, more of a punk stuff. And it was just, it just wasn't the right vibe. And <clears throat> those kids let us know. So we, you know, we finished the set. We did, we did the, the last 20 minutes or whatever. And we're getting off stage and they start, the, the staff starts taking our shit, ripping it out of the wall and just fucking taking it. Like, and care. And like the way my guitar rig was set up back then, I didn't have like cases and stuff, um, or at least stuff in cases on the stage. The, I had a, a box that you put the guitar head in and you, you know, close up the case that way. But, uh, it was like stacked on top of the case, on top of the cab, and they're trying to carry. I was like, "Yo, give me like two seconds. I'll just unplug. I'm gonna unplug this shit, and then we'll just just let me take the top piece off. Basically, I just want to get the head off of there." Um, and they're like, "No, we gotta get this shit off here." Blah, blah, blah. I do this shit every night. I'm like, "Dude, okay, man. I just don't want you to drop my my stuff, you know." And uh, so they're carrying it downstairs. It's wobbling, and they didn't drop anything, but it was just like, dude, just let me get the head off of there. It takes two seconds. I just take the cable out. Just let me carry it separately. That's all I want to do. But they were just worried about getting everything off stage and all that stuff. So that was weird. And then, so a little bit later, um, I think Stupid is on stage or... No, they're about to come on. That's what it was. They were about to come on stage. It was between bands. And I'd made my way. The way it was is they, they put this uh, guardrail system up through the center of the venue to separate the kids from the bar. And it kind of comes to like this sort of a cross point where the, the, the bars meet the, um, the bar meets the, uh, the guardrail on the corner. And <clears throat> I get to this sort of bottleneck of people and I'm like, Hey, you guys mind if I just jump over? And it was like people in the crowd. You mind if I get over there to, to the merch, the merch was on the other side. Oh yeah, no problem. I'm like taking pictures with people like they thought we were rad. So I I grab the guardrail, I jump over the top, and I land on the floor. And I was turned around, came down, and as soon as I plant my feet, I get this yank on the back of my shirt and this really hard tug. A second later, I'm on the floor, and my shirt is ripped off my body. Dude is holding my shirt in his hand. And I'm like, I look, I'm like, dude, what the fuck is your problem? Like, stood up. He's like, big dude, man. And uh, he's like, you don't cross the, you don't cross the line, blah, blah, blah. I was like, dude, I was just on stage 15 minutes ago for an hour. Like, oh, what are you big Mr. Rockstar now? You got to, I'm like, nah, man, I'm just saying, like, I'm trying to get to my merch table and talk to people. Man, it was like, I couldn't believe it, man, like. 
that shit sucked. And it was like, not only did it like hurt physically, I was like hit my elbow and my hip, I think when I came down pretty hard, but uh, it was like embarrassing. You know what I mean? It's like you're in front of these people, you're just getting tossed around. Uh, it was, it was really, yeah. So I just like, and then like right at that moment, I'm against the, they pushed me against the wall because stupid was walking through to get on the stage and they didn't know what happened. They didn't see anything. And they went on stage and did their thing. And I just got my shit and I fucking left. It was like the worst experience I've ever had at the venue. Um, so a week later, uh, cheers comes out. <laughs> so we had this, this crazy, interesting weekend. Uh, and then cheers comes out and man, it is just another step up from, uh, from where do it for the money was it just put us that much more on the map started getting more shows um i mean people were singing the songs we had the we had the friend zone we had somewhere tropical everything we re-recorded everything because it was just a, it was a jam you know paper dolls um phantoms uh drag close to me i mean the struggle i mean this song this this album had so many songs on it and that are still popular today, like in our top ten, top twenty on Spotify and Apple and all that. Like just it's crazy the the staying power, the the, the test of time that this record has gone through. Um it's definitely regarded as like one of our big fan favorite records. And uh we actually played it front to back in twenty thirteen when the record theater in Towson closed over here. And it's anytime I listen to that record, it just takes me back, man. Um, it was just a good time in our lives. Uh, and working with Scotch and, and having Chad mix it, it was just the whole thing. It was just a, just a fun, just a good time capsule to look back at. Um, <clears throat> so 2008 is going well. Cheers is crushing. Uh, I had it out on CD baby back then. And the band was actually starting to make a little money which was nice. And um, that was really the first time we'd ever, ever really experienced that. And being able to take money and put it back into the band, you know, for recording or whatever it was, touring, you know. Um, didn't really start going into the pocket until probably, it was, yeah, 09, 10, something like that maybe. Um, start paying bills, you know. Uh, later, 2008, I'd say October, November, December, something like that. Uh, went out with Dirty Heads. Um, they they were just a, this little band in Southern California that um, was looking to get out and do some stuff. And I I think they'd done some light touring before that, but um, we brought them out to the to the East Coast, and it was um it was awesome, man. Those guys were really fun to hang out with, and played some shows to almost no one a couple times. And, we're in Dallas. We played at a profit bar and eight people showed up, you know, but when you're vibing out with the band that you're on tour with, it, it just makes it that much better and easier. Um, we did some house party because the, I think our Austin show got canceled. So we ended up hanging out at this, uh, girl's apartment and we both bands just jammed. We had some acoustic guitars and, uh, you know, they brought it, they brought in the hand drums and, we just started jamming on each other's songs and um, it was just a fun experience, just a, just a good time, good tour. And it was just different for us as well. Cause those guys were more doing the hip hop thing, but it's somehow they did a little bit of reggae and it just, it just seemed to mesh well. Um, 
so it was nice to get to know those guys. And whenever we're whenever we see them at festivals and stuff, they're they're real nice, and we we say hello. And um, yeah, it's cool, man. I'm really stoked on their on their uh, their explosion. You know, almost ten years ago now. Um, so yeah, fast forward April 2009. We're in Mexico with Dirty Heads and B Foundation, and um, uh, had a crazy night that night. Like went to some some uh, Mexican bar and on a rooftop and just drank a bunch of beers and it was just fun man um <clears throat> sign with surf dog records that was uh we what we thought was uh, another another milestone we re-released cheers a year after it came out it came out cinco de mayo 2009 the re-release and a lot of you will recognize it from that blue cover with the girl in the front holding a beer which i thought made no fucking sense I didn't understand. I didn't understand the, the art. Um, the original art I put on was two hands clinging beers together, you know, like cheers, you know, just that made sense to me. And then they changed the art and just made zero sense. Uh, I don't know. Um, they cut six songs from the track list and we added a song called Alcohol Looks Beautiful Tonight because we had recorded it in 2008 and we we're like, well, we should probably give some sort of incentive to buy the record since it's coming out again. It's the same album. So we put that on there. And uh, I do like how Close to Me closes the album. I'm pretty sure it closes the album on that version. So I thought that was cool. But I was bummed out because I, I couldn't keep all the tracks and the art and stuff. Um, but we were stoked that we signed this deal because, you know, you think, all right, well, they're going to be taking a cut, so that means they're going to be working hard and doing things for the band. And uh, it just wasn't that way, man. We ended up giving away half our money for, I think it was like seven years or eight years after that. We just got Cheers back, I think it was earlier this year from that, once the contract was up. And uh, we restored all the tracks, the original art. We kept Alcoholics Beautiful Tonight on there, so it has 19 tracks now. Um, and re-released it on Right Coast Records, our own label. And uh, it just felt so good. I, I don't think they're bad people over there at Surf Dog. I just, I was very disappointed with how they handled our record. It was, I felt like we were just paying the bills and that's something that, you know, it it feels almost predatory in a way. It's just easy money for them because we were already doing well. When, when that record went away from our independent side, from, you know, from CD Baby, uh, the money was just not what it was. And that was frustrating. Um. I can't even believe we, we, our manager at the time let us sign the fucking contract. It was like reasonable efforts. Like it was something about uh, when it came to promoting the band. It was it literally said, we will use reasonable efforts to promote the band or something so stupid and general. I, I just, but you're excited. <clears throat> you know, you think, okay, 
finally, here's a label that really wants to work with the band and remind you, I'd already gone through this with two other bands. I didn't mention 2007 when J Records came calling. That was another one. So this was two years after the wind-up thing. 2007, man, I get approached again. I think it was MySpace. It was a message. And J Records was another huge label. They had, it was like a Clive Davis uh, label. They had Alicia Keys and something so promising. And that that's part of what really kept me going all these years was, was knowing that we were being approached by these top-level label labels that there was some potential there there has to be something here we just need to find the right person to hear the band you know and um so <clears throat> again talked for a few months came to some shows and we were ready to set up the showcase for clive davis which was wild and then it just fizzled out it didn't happen they said we need more more history you know and it was a fucking bummer man it was I was really hurt, you know, because that was our third time messing with a label, like a, a real label, and it was just gone, you know. And uh, looking back, I mean, all that stuff, had it happened, I don't even know where this band would be. I don't know if this band would still exist. I don't know, because you're so, like... I, you want to take advice and you want to do things that you think these people know what they're doing, but at the end of the day, you are the artist. And when you leave artistry to the people that aren't artists, they're going to fuck it all up. And that's why I'm so in control of everything that I do. And, you know, I got people telling me that we need to put out another record like Girls, and I love that record, but that's just not what happened this time. I didn't feel those that style of music when I was writing. I mean, I just lost my dad, and there was a lot of things that I started thinking about and I wanted to write about, and that type of music, that type of record just wasn't right for the things that I was writing down, and it just wasn't going to happen. I don't force anything, and, you know, so let me be the artist. You be the you know, you be the representation and you, you deal with whatever we give you, you know, that's how I look at it. And so I'm glad that that stuff didn't go down. Maybe it was for the better. Um, and now we have our own label and we own all our music or most of our music. And, you know, there's, there's still people to pay, but it's no near what it would have been had we been signing to labels. I can't stress enough that if you're in a band and you're approached by a label, and I own a label. This is coming from a label owner, okay? If you're approached by a label, especially today, when distribution is so easy, it's right there. You can sign into CD Baby or TuneCore or Lander or DistroKid and get your music out there. Um, it, it's You really got to think about it. You know, it's, is it worth giving away a piece of what you have, a piece of your music, um, to a company? Uh, is this company, there's no guarantee that this company is going to work hard for you. They're just not. You just have to trust that they're going to do that. They're going to be good people and really get behind the music. If, if it's, 
if you can feel that they're really into your band and they would love to see you succeed and they just talk about your band, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's something to think about. But if you end up in a situation like Surf Dog, like we did, where they weren't even into the music and I can't remember how I knew that. I just knew that they weren't. I just, it was, they had hit us up before and it was like, eh, kind of thing. And then they hit us up a few months later. It was like, well, okay, let's, it's like, nah, man, if you're not fucking feeling it, I don't want you touching my shit. Like, do, do not come near my music, right? Um, I can't stress enough that you, please think about it. Weigh the pros and cons. If you, if they really feel like that you, they can do something for you, um, they can get you on tour with, tour with some bands that can help you expand in the live setting, the touring setting, maybe, um, if the deal is good and they're not going to be predatory and take most of your money from the record, like the percentage, like you just really get a lawyer and really think about it. And hopefully you have good management that that can help you make that decision. But it's so easy today to put out your own music and my label. I don't want to put out bands um, that I know I can't help. Like if I don't feel like we can help monetarily, I don't even want to set and send an offer. In the past, bands have approached me about being on the label, and I've been interested, um, but we couldn't come to a deal. And it's no harm on either side. It's just like I'm being flat out. Look, this is all we can afford to do. This is all we can all we can give you. Is this worth it to you? And if they say no, then no hard feelings, man. It's not, we're not here to hurt. We just want to help people. You know, we're not we're not going to take your money. Uh, Labels need to get paid to recover costs and things like that, but it's all about the music and the growth. That's all we want to do. And until we get to a point where I feel like we can send a, a really good offer out to a band monetarily and um, you know on the tour support side, things like that, that's when I'll start offering record deals again to bands, you know. But for now, you can it's so easy to get your shit out there. Put some money into ads. You know, um, <clears throat> just just being honest, you know. Um, so 2009, uh, going on tour with the B Foundation, old friends of ours, homies, love them, California. Uh, fucking love that band. Had a lot of fun nights with them. Um, four months. We toured for like four months that year. Stupid. I couldn't believe it. I get home from that tour, find out I'm going to be a dad. Holy shit. Yeah, somewhere in that four months, I came home and uh, did stuff with Danielle. And then uh, came home, and I was going to be a father. I was uh, playing on my Xbox. I was playing Batman. <laughs> Arkham Asylum. I was playing the demo because I couldn't afford to buy the game. So I was, like, playing the first, like, they let you play, like, the first, like, half hour or something. I just played it over and over again. I was living in some some house that like the dude let the dog shit all over the floor because he wasn't home all day and smelled awful and you know just that situation you know what I mean slob and <laughs> I get this text I am pregnant in all caps like eleven exclamation marks and I was just like okay alrighty then so I just took the controller I sat it down on the bed. And I didn't touch that shit for like six years. <laughs> Shit's crazy, man. 
Yeah, and that's how uh, that's how my my two thousands, the aughts decade, ended for me. To go from the year two thousand being in this awful relationship, putting out my first record, um, trying to get this thing off the ground, to having three records out in the in the two thousands, finding out I'm going to be a dad at the end of it after everything that went down completely different person man completely different person what a time it was to be alive i and all the things i talked about like a lot of bummers man but honestly dude i'm stronger for going through all that shit and we i think we all have to go through that in order to appreciate the good things and i appreciate what i have um my my band is not I'm not at a point in my career with this band that I want to be at yet. Having said that, I can pay bills. I can do some things sometimes with the family. Like, I'm busy all the time, but like, I enjoy the work that I do. And I think that is the goal, man. The goal was never to work in a warehouse or be some fucking stooge, you know? Working tech support. I could do that shit. I could be tech support like a motherfucker, dude. I love fixing shit for people, like on getting their shit working, their computers, their phones, whatever. I love that shit. But it's not what I want to do for a living, right? I've created something. And what a wild time it's been. And to be meeting all of you, I know a lot of you listeners out there, I've met you at the shows countless times. And the support that we've gotten and I've gotten for this show. It's just, I don't know, man. A lot of hard work went into get all this going and uh, I just appreciate all of you. Um, I hope you learned a lot from my experience in the aughts. It was actually fun to go down that little road. I haven't really thought about that time in my life a whole lot. Especially those early years. Ugh. Ugh. (laughs) Uh, well, here's to another crazy decade, which we're almost done with. That's crazy. I'm talking about a decade that was almost 10 years ago. Isn't that that's wild, dude? This decade's almost over too. So maybe in a couple of years, I'll talk about everything that's happened in this 10 years. Man, wild. All right, everybody. Have a great day. Man, that was fun. What a look back. I <laughs> uh, hope you enjoyed it. Um, yeah, great idea. Thanks again, Colin, for that. I really appreciate it. Again, it's my daughter back there playing with her toys. Sorry for the noise. Um, yeah, if you have any uh, any ideas, what you'd like me to talk about, things I should address, um, hit it up in the comments on, uh, on Instagram when I make the posts. And uh, let me know what you're thinking, man. Let me know what you'd like to know about this, this whole crazy business I've been involved in for the last 23 and a half years of my life. Um, I've learned a lot the hard way. Um, so if you're in a band or you're an artist, um, and you just want to know how things work, uh, if there's any way I can help, or if you're just a, uh, someone that's just curious about how all this stuff works, please let, let me know in the comments and, uh, I'll try to address these things in future episodes. Uh, please, uh, rate and review the, the podcast, subscribe, tell your friends, um, I'm trying to get this thing up in the, in the, uh, in the charts number six in anchor already which is great um also if you use the anchor app to listen 
you can actually leave a voicemail for me. Um, you can leave a voicemail for me via the app, and I can actually add it to the show. So we can maybe eventually work in like a cool like call-in situation where I answer questions. It'd be kind of kind of cool too. Um, all right, well, uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Green Room, and have a wonderful day.